to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Hannah, and I'm on staff here at High Point Church. In today's episode, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, Jill Reese, our communications coordinator, and I discuss the topic of shame as it relates to the gospel and as it's regarded in popular culture in the States today. Our culture has a lot to say on shame these days, and while we don't always talk much about it in the church, scripture has a ton to say about shame as well. So in this podcast, we try to identify where those two perspectives, culture and the Bible, agree or conflict with each other. And we're really working towards a robust understanding of how shame is related to the gospel and what it means for us as Christians in our current context. So the main cultural voice that we interact with in this discussion is Brene Brown, not because we consider her a full representative of the range of voices in secular studies on the topic of shame, but because she's one with whom all three of us are familiar, and we've enjoyed her teachings, her writings, and her talks on the subject. And she's also one of the most influential figures on the scene right now on a popular level. Since our goal in the discussion is kind of to parse out what to reject and what to retain in the secular worldview, we take a critical perspective on some points of what Brown has to say. We wanted to say at the outset, though, that we have a great appreciation for Brown's work, and while we've done our best to represent her as fairly as possible based on our reading, there are places in our conversation where we branch out a bit, go beyond areas that we've heard her specifically address, and we don't want to put words in our mouth for those things, so take that with a grain of salt as you listen. Also, we were really only able to scratch the surface of the topic of shame in the gospel in this podcast. There is so much more in the subject that we'd love to share, so we've written a companion blog post for the topic of shame in the gospel. It includes links to some of the resources we mentioned in the podcast, as well as some of what we referenced in our own research preparing for it. Uh, it also includes a whole batch of scripture passages that illuminate how shame is addressed in scripture. And we highly encourage you to check those out and do some further study for yourselves. This has really been a topic that we personally have gleaned a great deal from, and it's made us appreciate the gospel even more fully. Uh, so you can find that post on our Engage and Equip blog. The address for that is hpcmadison.com. And with no further delay, here's our podcast on shame and the gospel. Enjoy! Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm here this day with Jill Reese. Jill Reese is our uh, connections coordinator, I'm sorry, our communications um, coordinator, and she is a UW grad. She studied psychology, did a minor in religious studies, including four semesters of Hebrew that counted for nothing but her own personal growth. And yeah, and also (laughs) Hannah Savage, who is presently my assistant, but she's also been a missionary, is about to be a missionary, and um, did linguistics and theology at Moody for her undergrad. Mm-hmm. Hello. And yeah, so we talked a little bit about insecurity in our last podcast, and we're going to widen this out a little bit by talking about um, shame as a cultural, some certain cultural understandings in our secular or the world around us, how people are talking about it. And then we're going to try to bring it home more in the direction of how would the, the scriptures, how would Jesus adjust these ideas so that we um so that we're both nourished and not broken by the idea of shame and so we can fully believe the gospel as he intended so um so we're going to focus on three questions what what does our culture say about shame and jill's going to focus on that she's recently read a book by Brene brown yes which is called 
Oh, well, I've, re- I've read a couple of her books. Uh, I read Daring Greatly, and her recent one is called Rising Strong. Okay. And she did it. There's a TED Talk associated with this if somebody yes. wants the 12-minute version, right? Yes. Her TED Talk is specifically on vulnerability. Okay. And then what does the scripture say about shame, and then how does the gospel address it? So um, after talking about insecurity last time, Jill, we want to move forward on this today. So how did you first start connecting the ideas of insecurity and shame and what kind of ideas do you have, have you encountered in, in terms of what's coming out of our culture as you've read stuff that's kind of like mm-hmm. in the popular world? Yeah. Uh, my personal, I guess you could say, interest in shame was more, uh, com- and I talked a little bit about this in the last podcast on insecurity, but it kind of came out of just feeling really terrible, <laughs> having this terrible feeling. And wondering what it was and how to get rid of it. Uh, And so um, some of that came just through finding out. It kind of first came through when I was a psychology major, finding out about, oh, depression and anxiety. Like, I think I feel those things. Realizing then that knowing of those things wasn't enough to get rid of that terrible feeling. So then looking to the, the Bible and saying, what sorts of things does the Bible say about this? And then looking hearing terms in the culture um, through readings like Brene Brown um, about shame and insecurity and hearing these words and, and trying to just identify that feeling and um, what it was so that I could not feel that anymore. <laughs> is, that, is that how you came across Brene Brown's first book? Yeah, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember exactly how, but I think I heard her TED Talk first okay. on vulnerability, which t- she talks about as kind of the pathway to empathy which she talks about the antidote as the antidote to shame and she does discuss a little bit more about um what shame is i think i read some of her book the gifts of imperfection but not all of it Mm -hmm. and it's really just about like we all have these things that make us imperfect but that kind of makes us who we are and it's not necessarily we don't need to feel shame about all these things we feel shame about okay so before we get to whether Mm -hmm. or not her views can ultimately be squared with the scriptures mm-hmm. and whether or not they make sense, right. really. Um, there are a, new, a number of observations that she makes kind of empirically about mm-hmm. how people respond to shame and what behaviors yes. it generates that are not particularly objectionable and that are fairly right. sci- they're scientific questions, right? Yeah. What are some of those things that you learned? Uh, she talks a lot about how shame uh, leads to, um, well, we'll get into this a little bit, but how shame leads to isolation and it makes us feel like we're alone in something. We um, are not enough. So it's kind of a universe. I mean, we've all felt <clears throat> that way <laughs> about certain things. Sense of personal worthlessness. Yeah, a sense of yeah unworthiness. Um, so she talks a lot about which, those things. Which leads to? Uh, unworthiness, what that leads to? Yeah, like, yeah. That, like so um, I, I imagine it would lead to like not feeling like you can meet new people easily. Right. Maybe not entering into new friendships easily. Mm-hmm. Or not really sharing who mm-hmm. you really are and the ones you've mm-hmm. got. Or, mm-hmm. or I mean, it can lead to other things, too, like pretending, trying to really hard to pretend, like hide fantastic. certain... fantastic. Yeah. Meeting everybody. parts and, of yourself. Yeah. yeah. So, I and I'm trying to think if she talks specifically about what it leads to in the, that sense. But I think yeah, there's, it does um, lead to... I was just I was listening last month to um, Megan Kelly's new, like, personal autobiography autobiography you can be fantastic mm-hmm. book and she has like two different chapters on her being little miss perfect body mm-hmm. image everything yeah, that she perfection. accomplished and then realizing yeah. that she got this memo that like all of the women in her life basically hated her mm. because 
nobody wanted to be around a woman like that. Mm-hmm. Like maybe people wanted to see shame. her on TV, <laughs> yeah. but they don't want to be her friend. Yeah. And she realized that she had no female mm-hmm. friends and that mm-hmm. she, like she, she writes about going to counseling about it mm-hmm. and like learning how to be, you know, normal and mm-hmm. like not projecting perfection, which came from her dad dying when she was a teenager mm-hmm. and all these like essentially right. insecurities. Yeah, and Brene Brown does talk a lot about the concept of perfection and how shame can lead to that and how, I mean, her book, first book is The Gifts of Imperfection. So it's kind of, you know, the counter of that and how we, when we try to just be perfect, we're not living wholeheartedly. So that's another word she uses a lot of wholehearted living. And so those are some of the things, concepts okay. she gives. Yeah, so, um, so in our culture, we talk about shame a particular way which tends to be a post-Freudian, like, you know, shame is this terrible thing Mm -hmm. and it represses people and so they don't live out their full lives. And so what we really need to do is stop trying to live up to other people's expectations. Mm -hmm. In that sense, Brene Brown is saying nothing remotely new. I mean, this Mm -hmm. this is out of... You can go back to Freud and you could go to 60s Gestalt, like, I don't have to live up to your expectations Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, But the minute we get outside of the immediate American context and start Mm -hmm. talking with international people especially people from Asia. Yeah. Um, this takes, looks totally different. So one of the reasons why we, we wanted Hannah to be here today is um, Hannah's, Hannah's been to Korea. She spent time. She has, she has friends. She's been working with Chinese international students for a long time. And she just she's about to go to a large Asian country as a, as a teacher. And so you think your, your interaction with this is very different because you, you're interacting with cultures that think about shame very different. So why don't you... Introduce people that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I'm also, I think my exposure to Brene Brown was also her TED Talk, um, and that's sort of a good condensation of some of her ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of my interaction with the topic of shame has been from a cross-cultural aspect. Um, in like cultural anthropology, specifically in missiology and the study of missions, they sort of make broad categories for different kinds of cultures. Um, They have cultures that are oriented around the concepts of guilt and innocence, which is where most of the West falls in. Um, They have honor-shame cultures, and then they have fear and power cultures. And so the more that I'm interacting with people who come from more of an honor-shame framework, the more I'm trying to wrap my head around it and really understand what it means and what does the gospel say to it. Um, And in the process, I'm also understanding more of how shame has affected me and what that really means, and then seeing the scripture through a new lens and where does shame show up in scripture. And so that's sort of where where I'm coming at it. So to clarify a little bit from what you've said already, um, do you think those broad brushstrokes, they're not totalizing, but they generally work, that there are such things as as mainly or focused on guilt-innocent cultures, Mm -hmm. fear power, and shame honor? Yeah, I think it's it generally is they are useful categories, but they're not. Um, but you would say in like this categories. Western culture that we're in, we we use fear and power, and we use shame and honor. I a think good bit. The best way to to distinguish these three would be um, like everyone's constantly thinking, where do I get what I need in order to survive? How do I get what mm-hmm. I need the most? Um, and in Fear power cultures, the cultures that they gener- generally classify in that category would be ones that have a really strong attention to the supernatural, um, where they f- interact with spiritual forces and they feel victimized by spiritual forces and they need to gain power over them or find security in some sense. Um, and so this, what people most often think of in those categories would be 
um, sort of more isolated rural tribal groups that interact a lot with um, making sacrifices and witch doctors and that kind of thing. Um, so not that's so this isn't about like the it's mafia, not necess- right? Like you need to be close <laughs> to a tough guy to save you. F- from your fear of being killed by the other guy. Traditionally, no, but I mean, there are parallels to that. I okay. mean, you're still thinking about who do I need to align myself with in order to So that survive. I'm safe. Right. Okay. Um, and in honor-shame cultures, um, you need honor in order to survive. You need status in order to survive. And so how do I get that um, is sort of the preoccupying thing. And it might not be the same in all different shame and honor cultures. Right. What might get you shame, in, shame or honor may change. Right, the standards may be different. Um, And in a culture like the U.S., the dominant culture errs more towards guilt and innocence, where we think about categories of right and wrong and to do behaviors that fit the moral standard or that um, deviate from it, etc. And as America becomes more relativistic morally, do you think it's maintaining its focus on guilt and innocence, or is it moving towards a different paradigm like shame. A lot of people fear. are talking about how America is beginning to move towards more of a shame shame and honor based culture. And it's one that's very interesting to look at relative to the traditional sense of honor and shame because it isn't following traditional categories of it. What is considered honorable or shameful is oftentimes very different from what has traditionally fallen in those categories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in younger generations, we're seeing much more emphasis on, on honor and shame. And so it's interesting to see how those dynamics are changing within the U.S., mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is, I think, all the more incentive for us to try and wrap our heads mm-hmm. around this theologically and figure out what does the gospel say to it. Okay. So within Brene Brown's work, as we've talked about this with Jill, um, essentially what she seems to be mostly interested in is getting past shame, that shame is, is essentially a categorization that you put on yourself of your identity. Mm-hmm. I'm this kind of person. I'm that a failure. Someone I'm a else unjustly puts on you. Right, mm-hmm. right. And guilt, she then defines as something, like a, a categorization of something you did. Mm-hmm. Like an action or a behavior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She says a that specific. Shame is a focus. This is a quote from... I think from Rising Strong. Rising Strong, yeah. She says, shame is a focus on self, while guilt is a focus on behavior. This is not just semantics. There's a huge difference between I screwed up, which would be guilt, and I am a screw up, which is shame. And in her estimation, she says that the former is acceptance of our imperfect humanity, and the latter, saying I am a screw up, is basically an indictment of our very existence. Mm -hmm. That's how she distinguishes the two. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, okay, so tell me, you guys have, you've read more of this, Jill. Um, what it sounds like she's partly doing there is psychologizing a moral category. So like mm-hmm. historically in a certain, to in a certain sense in guilt and innocence cultures, it was believed that guilt and innocence was an objective fact that was independent of you. Mm-hmm. That if you did a certain thing, you were guilty, not because you, we were now going to classify you as guilty, but that like you had incurred a real thing called guilt. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you are guilty, and therefore, you deserve judgment. And it was a moral category that was metaphysically distinct from our psychological feelings. Mm-hmm. It sounds like what Brene Brown is, how she's using the category is, this is a psychological category. Mm-hmm. Where you feel bad because of an activity that you did that doesn't define your identity and doesn't have to carry with you. As guilt? Yeah, yeah. and you don't right. need atonement. Yes, and you don't need to be punished 
and you don't owe society anything, like the costs of guilt, don't seem to be fundamentally bound up in her understanding of guilt. I think it's more that it's, from my understanding, it's more that it's separated from your identity. Where um, I think she would say that, some, I mean, people do wrong things, and hopefully that leads you to realize it and do the right thing. But it isn't necessarily like someone morally is saying this is right or wrong. I don't think she goes that far mm-hmm. to have it as a moral category. Mm-hmm. It's more like maybe you did this and it hurt someone else or something. Okay, so within, yeah. within that framework, shame then is an unuseful, a categorically unuseful emotion. Feeling, yeah. Right. Yes, that you either somehow take out of a situation and apply to your identity or someone says something to you and you apply it to your identity. But it's basically a feeling that you are not enough or you like I am stupid or I am whatever and you feel that way about yourself categorically versus like I did this thing and it was wrong which is guilt or I did this stupid thing I should try to do the right I did a bad behavior but yeah. I'm not a bad person. Right, but I'm not a bad person. Yeah, so that's a good way to... There's a lot of that in parenting models now. Mm -hmm. That, like, you don't say to a kid, you're a liar. You say, that was a lie and you shouldn't tell lies. Because Mm -hmm. you're an honest kid. Mm -hmm. Even if they've, like, just lied to you, like, 17 times. You're an honest... (laughs) I know you're an honest kid and this is a lie and you shouldn't tell lies. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, the shame... In her concept of shame, it's kind of on the basis that we are good people like we're a human being we don't need to feel shame just because we are a human being and in good in this context would mean something like worthwhile worthwhile yes not more it doesn't mean morally good she doesn't really trade in that right it's more like you shouldn't hate yourself yeah because you're a human you're a human and humans are imperfect this is the way things Mm -hmm. things are Mm -hmm. and to therefore beat yourself up is like to reject reality Mm mm-hmm Right, because no human can live up to these things, and so if you try, you're actually engaging in unreality mm-hmm. with shame, and that really is going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. So there's no good shame. Yeah, it's it's shame would be unnecessary and unhelpful completely in her, without a purpose really for us. Okay, so mm-hmm. we might be trading in slightly different definitions, Hannah, but essentially then. This would be in disagreement with most of the cultures that existed throughout <laughs> the history of the world among human beings. I mean, in terms of the dismissal of shame. Yeah, the shame is never good. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And that, um, I mean, there, there's also the language of sort of within honor shame cultures, you have reintegrative shame, shame that's designed to redirect you back into community and to redirect your behavior. And then you have destructive or disintegrative <clears throat> shame, which is basically just a casting off and a shame that can't be remedied. There's nothing you can do to repair it. It's just permanent, and your personhood is just rejected. So examples, this, is, this would be something like, um, I'm in a Korean family, and I go to university, and I get C's and B's mm-hmm. when I was expected to get A's. Mm-hmm. And that's shame. I feel very ashamed. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. people affirm that I should feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. But if I get all A's next semester mm-hmm. and for the next two years mm-hmm. and get into the master's program that my family hopes I'll get into, I can regain. Your shame is life. removed. Right. Yeah, you're free from that. But shame. if I'm a daughter and we were hoping that I would marry somebody and that these two families would come together and both be stronger and I run off with 
another guy that I'm so in love with and who ultimately casts me off. I'm in, in a much different place, especially his, if we went back 100 years. Yes. Yeah, that would be a hard shame to remove. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also um, not just the nature of the thing that brings the shame on you, mm-hmm. um, but the motivation behind the shame in terms of whether it's disintegrative or reintegrative. Right. Um, is the shame designed to redirect you back into community or is it designed to cast you off mm-hmm. and to abandon you outside of the mm-hmm. sphere of the community? And historically within shame and honor cultures, both were considered useful and necessary in human life. Right. That there are some humans that engage in actions so fundamentally antisocial and destructive of honor and love and flourishing that they should be cast off. Right. I mean, and making the distinction between like the redemption that Christ brings in a culture, what a truly Christ centered culture would do versus mm-hmm. just normal human behavior. Right. I mean, shame is used destructively. Right. Yes. Yeah, and so, it's yeah. used constructively. So right now, yeah, I'm just asking like normally historically within human right. shame. Right. Both both are have been embraced traditionally right. on our shame cultures. Right? Okay. Um, okay, so anything else we should set up before we talk about the gospel and the scriptures and how they relate to shame? Yeah, I think it would be good to have a general understanding of sort of what we're talking about mm-hmm. with shame just as a as a concept. Okay, go um, for it. So there, at least from my understanding of shame and what I think we've all kind of agreed on, um, shame has two main aspects. One would be isolation and the other would be unworthiness. So it's um, a personal sense, not just that what I did was wrong, but that I as a person am wrong. Um, and I think this sort of co-works with Brene Brown's definition of shame. Um, and so I think the example that um, that you've brought up, Nick, before is helpful um, in childrearing about you told a lie versus you are a liar. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the mm-hmm. distinction there. Um, and then what shame brings with it is a rejection from community. It, it brings isolation with it. Um, which is why in honor-shame cultures it's so devastating because honor-shame typically tends to dominate cultures that are very communally oriented, where you depend mm-hmm. very strongly on the communities to survive. Mm-hmm. And so you really need honor in order to survive <laughs> because if you get kicked out, you're going to die on your own mm-hmm. somewhere yeah. um, or you're going to like live barely scraping by on the outskirts of the city. And... You're out for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so... Because you can't just leave and say, well, screw you, I'm going to go find a new community because... There's no other... Because <laughs> other communities only accept you on the recommendation of people they trust. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, so you can't get a recommendation you're cast out of human society right broadly speaking mm-hmm. um, and so the way that shame is removed I mean shame can be thinking about how it manifests in our culture today you can feel shame because you earned it for yourself some behavior that you did revealed you to be this kind of a person and then you that's a shame that you earned for yourself or it can be sort of bestowed upon you because you didn't have the kind of education that the people around you had mm-hmm. or because um, one of your parents drinks and so you're afraid to bring your friends home because it's not your fault. You didn't do anything, um, but this is part of who you are and you feel ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill talked about this in our, one of our other podcasts mm-hmm. about just after her, yeah, her parents security. got divorced. Right, right. She just was like, I didn't want to bring people to my house and mm-hmm. people ask these questions and like that's not guilt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's shame. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. Um, But it relates to sort of this 
comparison against a standard that you're supposed to yeah. live up to. You're supposed to be this kind of person. And when you fail to be that kind of person, then you feel shame. And then that leads to isolation from a community. Mm-hmm. And some communities have lots of rules that you're supposed to live up to in order to maintain honor. Mm-hmm. And then other cultures have fewer rules. Like I'm, Don Carson wrote about in, in Japan, there's like there's several hundred <laughs> basic rules that you have, you're supposed to know them all and live mm-hmm. up to all of them. Whereas in like American culture, tolerance is the one rule. Yeah. And like, so mm-hmm. if you break that rule, like you get ultimate shame mm-hmm. because there's only one rule. And mm-hmm. so if you subvert that rule, it's, it's a really big deal. Whereas mm-hmm. in Japanese culture, there are lots of rules that like you'll get a little shame for mm-hmm. and it kind of gets you back on the right mm-hmm. track, but you don't get just cast out if you break one rule because mm-hmm. there's lots of rules. Right. Some are bigger than others. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's true of any culture, even you think about your family culture or whatever community that you're in has a culture and there are un- unspoken rules <laughs> and ideals that you kind of just pick up and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be like that. Mm-hmm. And so not living up to that, I think, is what can lead to experiencing shame. Yeah. So I think to clarify this a little bit is, you know, even though Brene Brown would argue that no shame is good shame, right? Mm-hmm. Shame is a universal human phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Because human beings are relational beings, and relationships have to have certain guidelines and structures, otherwise mm-hmm. they're weird. <laughs> and every human kind of implicitly knows this. Mm-hmm. And so every human community sets up these kinds of guidelines and rules and setups, and they enforce them themselves, mm-hmm. which is shame mm-hmm. and honor. Mm-hmm. And so um, all human societies, every human community, even if they think they're post-Freudian and super enlightened and utterly tolerant, aren't. Because shame is a universal human phenomenon. So you can see sort of like in extraordinarily tolerant, I'm using quotation marks in the air here, um, <laughs> contexts where people think they're just the most tolerant people mm-hmm. that have ever existed on planet Earth mm-hmm. can engage in enormous shaming mm-hmm. exercises of people that they think should be out of the pale and not accepted mm-hmm. in any meaningful sense and kind of not put together in their head that they are a very strong shame on our culture, even though they think, even though their like ethic is we don't shame people mm-hmm. and tolerances because, yeah. be, and it's not because they're, they're more stupid or something. Mm-hmm. It's because you can deny that humans utilize shame and honor but they do. It doesn't do. stop us from doing right. it. Right. Yeah. Every human does it. Yes. And so, um, where do we then, okay, so where do we go? If every human does it, is it because all humans do this bad thing and that shame is never useful? Or is, are, there, are there biblical Christian insights, gospel insights here? Because I think we would probably argue if we had to classify the Old Testament, the people of God, we would say they engage in relationships with spiritual forces, mm-hmm. but not as not in enormous ways. I mean, they engage with God, but there isn't all this demon and spirits talk in the Old Testament. Very little of it, actually, for how ancient the culture is. Um, there is our clear understandings of guilt and innocence in the law. That's definitely mm-hmm. true with legal penalties and so on, mm-hmm. right? But the first five books of the Bible are mostly the law. You would expect it to have some categories of, of guilt and innocence. But then there's a very strong component in the Bible regarding shame Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. what are some maybe some examples of this right well when you think about um, shame in the categories of um, unworthiness and separation Mm -hmm. I mean if we look at just Adam and Eve we see that after their rebellion Mm -hmm. against God they 
didn't just see themselves as culpable, they hid themselves as people, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and they hid from God. That and that it explicitly was, says before that, they were naked and they didn't unashamed. feel ashamed. Yeah, they didn't exactly. right. feel ashamed. Yeah. And so that's like right there at mm-hmm. the very beginning of the human story. We see a, a breakdown in the relationship with God mm-hmm. because shame entered into the story. And with each other. And with each other, exactly. They make clothes, right. and then God's like, you really should wear clothes now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I support the wearing of clothes. Yeah. Let yeah. me help you with it's that. It's like the biblical argument against nudist colonies <laughs> and that like you should feel you shouldn't feel ashamed of your body, mm-hmm. but you should feel ashamed to go around naked mm-hmm. because of what it does to human societies. Yeah. Right. And so you should put some clothes on. And that's like page three, mm-hmm. right? And then you have the casting out of the garden, um, mm-hmm. in that and that's a fundamental part of the brokenness that comes with the fall. Um, and then right in the hiddenness of God which becomes mm-hmm. maybe the greatest right. theme of scripture is our separation from God that there is a temporary casting away of the mm-hmm. honorable one to the dishonorable ones mm-hmm. until he can through very strange <laughs> concatenation of means over thousands of years mm-hmm. restore them mm-hmm. right and then just kind of looking through the arch arc arch arc mm-hmm. of redemption through scripture <laughs> um <laughs> You see this show up over and over and over again. You see God's interaction with Israel, with the Israelites, um, and bringing honor to them by being their God and dwelling among them. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the, there's lots of prayers in the Psalms like that, like God, right. don't leave me to shame, exactly. but vindicate. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the whole concept of vindication we talked about this earlier. Mm-hmm. The whole concept of vindication is kind of rooted in shame. That's not a guilt innocence word. That's a raise me up above the people who are putting me down mm-hmm. and placing me in a place of shame. Mm-hmm. And you see this trust that those who falsely shame the people of God um, will receive shame in exchange for that. And mm-hmm. that the false shame will be removed. That way they will be honored by God ultimately in the end. Um, you were talking about how basic, basically every book of the prophets there's all i mean almost half the old testament is the prophets right and all of them are basically like you should be ashamed of yourselves and i will shame you right before all the nations watching you right they know what you've done and i will shame you like um and send you away and send you away exactly Mm -hmm. um and very vivid depictions of shame like Mm -hmm. like i'm trying to think some of the other biblical images of shame like throwing your skirts above your heads and Mm -hmm. um like i'll reveal your nakedness before the nations and mm-hmm. yeah um, ezekiel 16 is one of the examples we talked about before mm-hmm. of like there's this whole story about him finding a child kicking its blood so like birth shame like that had no no capacity for honor mm-hmm. and then he's like and then i honored you right. and made you my wife and then you became this prostitute and you're gonna go away and mm-hmm. be killed and it's gonna be horrible Right. right. And not just that you will suffer, but that you will suffer shame. Right. And you shamed me. Right. Um, and that you would, like, how absurd and unthinkable it is to shame the Most High God. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. But then the remedy that God provides for shame in Christ, you know, as one who bore our shame um, and then... And um, suffered the most shameful death. Like, people right. talk about the death of the cross. Because it's excruciating. I mean, mm-hmm. that literally means out of the cross, right? right? And it was a horrifically painful death. Mm-hmm. But most of the emphasis in the actual biblical narratives focuses on the social degradation and the, the shamefulness mocking, of the, the death. The spitting, mm-hmm. the nakedness, and the mm-hmm. place of criminals. And the... People throwing stuff at them and right. being hung up publicly right. and being thrown in an open grave mm-hmm. like a piece of garbage in order to communicate that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's even there's examples of... 
what we would call the right use of shame, the right use of shame or the right standing up to shame. So like, for example, in 1 Samuel 20, 30 is where Saul realizes Jonathan's been helping David. Mm-hmm. And he says to, the, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother, you've been helping this mm-hmm. person instead of sticking with your father. Mm-hmm. So he's playing the shame culture, shame card. Like I'm the king, I'm mm-hmm. the person of honor. You should be supporting me. Instead, you're supporting David. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan accepts that shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but realizes he's done the right thing, and he's not gonna, he's not gonna back down. He's mm-hmm. actually supported God's anointed because he's not gonna shame God, mm-hmm. or God's anointed mm-hmm. and David. And so you see this shame dynamic between the king and his son and God's chosen person, because God ultimately brings shame to Saul and his house, mm-hmm. and honors David who comes from nowhere and from nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the psalm that that you brought out about shame. In psalm thirty-four. Yeah, Jill. Um. Well, yeah, so I was, most of the examples I could think of were um, examples where it says that in Christ we don't need to have shame. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Psalm 34 says, uh, those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. Mm-hmm. Um, Romans 8 sort of talks about it in uses of the word condemnation, but in Christ Jesus, um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hebrews talks about how Christ scorned our shame mm-hmm. on the cross and so um, there's themes of overcoming shame, which I think also implies that our sin leads to shame. <laughs> you know, off, uh, that's that's what I would call, you know, the, um, what did you say? Re-inde- re- the reintegrative. Reintegrative shame, in a sense, or redemptive shame, where we do sin, and that leads to our shame, mm-hmm. but that is meant to drive us towards the removal of our shame through mm-hmm. Christ. Oh, who's the only one who can actually remove our shame. Right, and recognizing that it's we're powerless to remove mm-hmm. our own shame. Um, and that's why the gospel is such good news. Uh, until we feel the weight of exactly how terrible shame is, I think that's something that's relatively new revelation to me, to mm-hmm. recognize this feeling, this experience that I have as shame, and recognize how horrible it is and what good news it is that I don't bear that shame anymore in mm-hmm. Christ. You were saying before, Hannah, how in certain cultures, uh, in certain places, like if you lose if you're disgraced and mm-hmm. you're ashamed and you lose honor, that only somebody of very high honor can actually reach down mm-hmm. and pull you back up. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people, they struggle mightily with, because of the Western right. guilt-innocence thing, mm-hmm. they struggle mightily with the concept of atonement. They're like, well, how can somebody die for somebody else? And there are answers for that even within that context. Mm-hmm. But if you see the whole thing as, as existing within all of these cultures, victory right. over spiritual forces, but then secondly the pulling up out of shame right. from somebody infinitely powerful that is taking on our shame, mm-hmm. that the atonement makes sense as a removal of shame. Mm-hmm. And you can see it within that metaphor of understanding. And there's no problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also where the category of adoption and sonship is especially meaningful. Um, because in a culture oriented around honor and shame, family is everything. Like you are your family. Your, your personhood is defined by that. Mm-hmm. So if you're a high-standing, low-standing family, that's just who you are. That's who you're always going to be. Every generation of your family is going to be that. Um, and so that type of honor or shame is particularly hard to, to alter. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be adopted into a high-ranking family, you automatically are the heir to all the honor that is um, mm-hmm. bestowed upon that family. And so it fundamentally changes the kind of person you are in a way that you could never do for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to think of we as humans in ultimate shame and separation from God um, that we have earned for ourselves, you know, um, 
but then the audacity of God that he would adopt us mm-hmm. into his family and that we would be co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High God. There is no position of honor that's really fathomable yeah. in the universe <laughs> greater than that. Um, and that is sort of the scandal of, mm-hmm. of the gospel on that from that perspective. And people in those cultures feel like the gospel is a little scandalous. Right. They're like people of yeah. absolute shame. You shouldn't do Can that. be raised up to the <laughs> right. right. The world shouldn't, it shouldn't Operate be possible that way. Yeah. to do that. So the gospel world. isn't just a scandal in guilt, innocent cultures. Right. It has, it's just as scandalous within exactly. a shame culture because it's a misuse of honor. Right. It seems like a sort of almost a, a scorning of honor mm-hmm. that you would waste honor on people like Anybody us. Anybody who would receive it. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's at the discretion of our of the, the right. person of high honor. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so um, so in, in anything, like, the world is never wrong about everything. There's natural revelation, and our false philosophies are always better than they should be because of God's image and because of the capacity for reasons given us. Christians, our views are always worse than they ought to be mm-hmm. because of our, our mm-hmm. flesh, right? So whenever we take an idea that we're talking about in our culture in, in the gospel, there, we, there are some things we can receive from what people mm-hmm. think, there are some things that we have to reject. Mm-hmm. And then there's some things that we just, we have to change. We have to redeem them. Um, they're, they're, they're getting onto something, but the gospel corrects them and changes mm-hmm. them. So when it comes to shame, what are, what are some of the things that we should accept? That they're like, yep, this is right. I think um, what Brene Brown speaks to in shame in terms of identity and the thing we believe about ourselves, I think that's like... It's kind of what you're saying with the redeem thing in my mind. It's close. It's like there, but not all the way there um, in terms of uh, we, shame does affect our identity. And she would say it affects it wrongly and we shouldn't believe these things about ourselves. I, I, I think as we've been talking about the gospel and sin, sometimes we we should feel shame <laughs> about things. Right. And when we've sinned or done something wrong, that does mean we are a liar and not just that we've lied. Uh, and so there's that aspect, but there's also... Th- so, what you're, yes. so what you're saying is, is that one thing to accept is that shame really is about our identity. When yes, she says it's it about is. your identity, mm-hmm. not just your behavior, one right. behavior, that you're saying, I am this thing. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yes. Shame is about identity. Yes. What Where we're going to have problems is that you're that you even if you told a lie, you're not a liar. Like mm-hmm. the, the Christian view is... No, he who breaks one part of the law is guilty mm-hmm. of a break. Like, no, you're a liar. Mm-hmm. When you tell lies, you're a liar. Um, and so a Christian can't really go along with this idea that, like, you've, got, you've done these actions where you might feel guilt, and that might motivate you not to do them again. But in terms of your identity, you're still a perfectly worthwhile person. Mm-hmm. That, that separation doesn't really work. What you do, it, you, what we do, we do out of who we are. Mm-hmm. And to say that I did that thing, but I'm not that kind of person is an exercise in fantasy, mm-hmm. is what you're saying. That's one thing yes. we might need to reject. Yes. And then, but along with that, I think something to accept is that sometimes shame is put on to us wrongly. Like, we don't need to feel shame about something. And someone told us something, and we feel shame about it, <laughs> or whatever the situation might be. And that is unnecessary shame that's not because of something we've done. Like in 1 Samuel when Saul shames Jonathan. Right. Jonathan did the right thing. He supported yeah. the Lord's anointed. In doing so, he even supported his own father. Mm-hmm. But his father shamed him for it. And he's like, mm-hmm. I don't have to accept that shame. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the right thing. Yeah. 
And so th- there, it's true that there is unnecessary shame. And there are also just carry. non-moral categories right. of shame as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Um, that you should always go with your family. Like what your family does, you should go with. Like, Or like, you should like this kind of music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's, um, why? Yeah, like, yeah I've, been, I've been shamed for ever listening to country music in yeah. my life. Right, like that's a, that's <laughs> By my own wife. That's a non-moral category. Yeah. And it's, According to you, she would say. But yeah, <laughs> I would say theologically we should get there. Right, right. yeah. Right. And I think another step forward with that is I think her... Um, her re- resolution to shame doesn't go far enough as well. Like Brene Brown's way Brene, of resolving re- shame. Yes, because it it's mostly like let go of caring about what people think of you and let go of feeling like you have to be in control. But the that, gift of imperfection. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't take us far enough because I think we know. I mean, if we let go of being in control, we just everything is out of control. Who is in control then? Um, so it, it does require. Um, adopting a new identity, as mm-hmm. as you were talking about, Hannah, in in Christ, in our union with Christ, whether we feel unnecessary shame or rightful shame for something we've done, we can't remove our own shame and by just ignoring it or letting it go. We have to have someone take it mm-hmm. from us. And there is this concept in the Bible, sometimes referred to as self-control. <laughs> yeah, that, like that right. we, we aren't supposed to release control of our lives in the sense that we're not supposed to have moral self-mastery. Mm-hmm and engage in the formation of our own character. And so things that you could dismiss is like, oh, these are, I'm just like this, and Hannah was talking about support, mm-hmm. that, that it can lead to this, actually this sort of um, ex- exponential explosion of human selfishness, where like you're actually not responsible to change anything about yourself mm-hmm. that is part of your character. You are that mm-hmm. kind of person. You probably should feel ashamed that you're that kind of person, and you should be doing everything possible to no longer be that kind mm-hmm. of person. Which goes beyond just guilt of like, oh, I did this thing, maybe I shouldn't do it in the future. Yeah, it's not, we shouldn't accept our current identity as whatever we are. We need a new identity in Christ. And so it's not just saying, oh, I'm this way, this is who I am, you should love me because I'm worthy of love because I'm a human, and this Mm -hmm. is just how I am, so this is my identity. It's more of, I need, I do need to feel shame about that. And I need a new identity. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of the like if we if shame is based on not being the kind of person that I'm supposed to be, then you have to be measuring it against some kind of standard. Mm -hmm. And so what we feel ashamed of or proud of depends on the model to which we're comparing ourselves. What is the ideal that we're measuring up? They're trying to measure up Mm -hmm. to. Um, What is winning? (laughs) Right. What What is is a good character? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Who am I supposed to be? And so. If you have a model that um, a, a secular, a culturally defined model that's sort of unrooted in the reality of Christ in the gospel and who God is and what a human is supposed to be in Christ, um, then you're going to be ashamed of the wrong things and proud of the wrong things. And you're going to get all screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is a common condition for us in the church and outside of it is that we have multiple different models that we're trying to live up to. Mm-hmm. We have conflicted sense of ideals of what am I supposed to be. Um, and then we have just this very confused and tumbled sense of you're not even sure what you should be proud or ashamed of. And you yeah. just feel ashamed all the time. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. If you're And if you're a Christian kid, mm-hmm. like... Um, and your family says, well, we want you to be a good person, but they are constantly talking about your grades. 
right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You're going to get this idea that shame and honor in my household flows through my grades. Mm-hmm. If I achieve well in school, if I go to a good college, mm-hmm. I'm honored. And if I don't, I'm ashamed. As opposed to a parent who says, look, we want you to do well in school. Mm-hmm. But what we care about is your character. We care how you treat people. Mm-hmm. And that, and a kid then realizes, oh, this is how honor and shame flows in my family. Mm-hmm. Whether or not I choose to trust God and be a, in, in live according to what he says is honorable or good. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes our parenting models get really screwed up. And I, I also think that um, that shame is an offense to high self-esteem ideology. Mm-hmm. And yet the, um, now almost all behavioral psychologists are telling us that the number one um, dictator of success, which is of course what all of our idolatries as parents are interested in rather than what they should be, isn't self-esteem, it's self-control. That's what they're all telling us now. And the use of shame can be very detrimental to a a sense of self-esteem, perhaps, if it's misunderstood, it's put on for the wrong reasons, Mm -hmm. if people don't know they have an identity in Christ and all that. Your identity, your worthiness as a person depends on your grades. Right. Now that's... Right, but if it, but it, but if what bre- leads to success is self-esteem, mm-hmm. as a parent, you may be like, I should never use shame because then mm-hmm. my kids' self-esteem might be harmed by that. They might think less of themselves. But it might be that we should think a lot less of ourselves mm-hmm. and that that might be very helpful in leading us to realizing we need to be different selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need to actually change as human beings. We need to become something in terms of character. We haven't reached the pinnacle of who we are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I need to be more disciplined. I need mm-hmm. to be a different kind of person. And, and in that case, if what we want to ultimately have is self-control, shame mm-hmm. might be an enormously useful tool if used disciplined and rightly and mm-hmm. compared to the right ideal. Right. And so where I think this bringing it back to Brene Brown, I think what the sort of groundedness that's missing in her theory of shame um, is that rather than recognizing that there can be a good standard by which proper, like, constructive shame can flow, mm-hmm. um, she throws out the category completely that you shouldn't be comparing yourself to any standard. You are already exactly what you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And therefore, any sense of shame is unfounded. It's out of place because... You can want to be different than you are and try to change right. yourself. and that's fine. But there's you no, feel like there's you no oughtness. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Um, whereas... When you have a biblical model that you're comparing yourself to, um, you have the the potential for good shame, (laughs) for Mm -hmm. shame that's supposed to draw you back into who you're supposed to be, back into relationship and restore you. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the worst people I've ever met in my life, just mm -hmm. categorically horrific human beings that hurt everybody around them, are the people who are the most shameless. Well, that's really interesting because in like honor-shame cultures, shameful is not as bad as shameless mm-hmm. to be called a shameful person like oh that's terrible that's bad but to be a shameless person that's atrocious human, yeah right? you're but you're not even human you don't even have a sense of shame mm-hmm. you're subhuman if that's true of you um and i think i mean not to relate this too strongly but that's kind of what um secular culture is advocating is a sense of shamelessness mm-hmm. um and Which is an inhumanity. Biblically speaking, we kind of, I mean, yeah. we have to say that. that there's yeah, so there's, <laughs> incredible, like, there's incredible fundamental 
divide here. And some of the stuff Brene Brown says is extraordinarily helpful, and her mm-hmm, research mm-hmm. is very careful. And yeah. dang, she's likable if you watch her TED mm-hmm. talk. She's really funny. Yeah, <laughs> funny and a really likable person, yeah. and so um, analytical mm-hmm. that she just warms my heart to listen to her talk. <laughs> and I, f- I found her talk very helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of her stuff about intimacy and so on, I think, yeah. is extraordinarily helpful and right on. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to this, um, it has a kind of built-in meant uh, moral relativity feet planted in midairness about it and what it misses is that all human relationships have rules and those rules are based on goods and evils and rights and wrongs and you can't even have a relationship with anybody without knowing those functionally and using empathy as she does is kind of like the totalizing reality humanly speaking is completely insufficient because empathy doesn't necessarily create any standards it kind of like it can infinitely, progressively lower the standards as long as we're both empathizing that we both stink. Um, But ultimately, what people long for is stability and security, like you said before, what we need to survive. Mm -hmm. Humans do need each other to survive, but they need certain things out of relationships, and therefore, we are supposed to be certain things. We're supposed to be self-governed and have Mm self-mastery and have self-control, and shame is how we enforce those things on each other because the minute you don't have shame, either you can't have relationships or you have to pull out a gun. Because shame is actually the most efficient human mechanism for enforcing good behaviors on other people and among each other. Mm-hmm. And the minute you take away shame, something else has to fill that vacuum if there's still going to be human relationships. So either human relationships are going to go into a, a way of utter destruction or you need other structures that can be very painful ones like prisons and jails and courts and police officers and so on. And um, and sometimes when you take shame away from a particular behavior or activity, you get a heck of a lot more of it because the flesh wants to do whatever it wants mm-hmm. to do. And so there, there, I think there are some reasonable arguments, for example, with single motherhood in America, that taking shame away from single motherhood has been helpful for single mothers trying to re-engage into mm-hmm. community and not feeling shamed and pushed out, which is a positive. But it also it's not as big a cost emotionally and personally in terms of the community to become a single mother in ways that are immoral. It has a sort of catch-22 to it, unless you have this belief in redemptiveness that everyone is worthwhile in Christ. There are certain behaviors that are shameful. However we orchestrate the enforcement of those, they should be redemptive in nature, trying to reintroduce people back to the community. Right, that you aren't condemned to the, that shame for eternity. Mm-hmm. Then. Mm-hmm. But even like, single mothers are easy to pick on, but like even just being rude, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? The idea that being rude isn't horrifically shameful has gotten us a lot more rudeness, mm-hmm. for example. And with, there's a there's an enormous amount of very embarrassing, whereas when we were in the South, when Lex and I lived in the South, rudeness was such a shameful event. Mm-hmm. That it was it was borderline unthinkable, and you just got a lot less of it. Mm-hmm. People just weren't nearly as rude, mm-hmm. um, even though in some ways they may have done other things that were worse in certain ways than other sure. cultures mm-hmm. where the shame dynamics were different. So I think that it's really I think the Bible has a very strong concept of the usefulness of shame, and yet it's not the guiding dynamic mm-hmm. because of shame being taken away in Christ. And so mm-hmm. there's this sort of like intermediate shame of like, I need to be better than this. Mm-hmm. And Christ has died for me so I can be better than this. Mm-hmm. And I want to grow in self-control even though we're not, it's not conditional shame. It's not like you're shamed, you're out until you earn your way back mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're out, you were talking about shame as being restorative and 
to human relationships, but without personal, without shame, there's no longing to get rid of the shame through, you know, which comes through Christ and seeking out the, how do I get rid of this terrible feel, this, this identity that I have, you know, and, um, whether it's necessary shame or deserve shame or undeserved shame, um, there's a driving force through shame to toward Christ mm-hmm. and redemption. Okay. Yeah, and our like our identity has to be at stake. Mm-hmm. Like if it's kind of like, yeah, I was rude. Sometimes, sometimes right. I say rude things. No, you actually need more motivation mm-hmm. than that. You need to be like, no, you know what? I'm a rude person, and I need to not be a rude person. <laughs> how do I not be a rude yeah, person? Yeah, I need to like, you know, like I told you guys before how um, I my son lied to me, and I told him that's a lie. Don't lie. Right. Mm -hmm. And the modern parenting instruction would be to say, you're an honest boy. Don't tell a lie. Right. Nothing got his attention until I called him a little liar. And I, I, until further notice, I wasn't going to believe a word he said. Mm -hmm. When I called him a little liar, I saw his face change Mm -hmm. and he started to cry. Mm -hmm. Like he realized Mm -hmm. he had, he was losing or had lost something and it was very precious and that he had hurt our relationship and the dynamic between us had to change because he had destroyed the basic rules of how people love and care for each other. You have to tell the truth. And if you don't tell the truth, you don't have anything. And I saw that affect him really deeply. Mm -hmm. And it really changed. It helped change him. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had told him for months, that's a lie. Don't tell lies. God doesn't like lies. Mm -hmm. God is always truthful. That wasn't enough until I looked at him in the eye and said, you're a little liar. And it, it changed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think... Um, so, yeah, what's your bring it home com- uh, <laughs> comment? Well, I was thinking about it in, in my own life um, and how... What do we do as people who are in Christ, um, who continue sinning, who continue yeah. um, doing things that violate um, God's perfect order, um, that violate our relationship with Him and with other people and... Um, how do we reconcile that with the reality that our identity in Christ is secure? And mm-hmm. um, and I think um, thinking in my own experience, um, the way that this has changed my relationship with Christ and thinking through these ideas is that you know we have those kind of like habitual sins that we just fall back into, um, and that. Um, we feel a sense of shame over, and we feel separation with God. We feel it damaging our relationship with God. We feel a distance growing when we, those sins compile, and we come in repentance. Um, but oftentimes, in my experience, there's I've been afraid to enter back in. Like, mm-hmm. I feel the sense of shame. Why do I keep doing this? I hate this. This is disgusting. Um, and so I'll hide myself from God. I mm-hmm. won't come back to him. And what the gospel says to us is that that's the wrong reaction, mm-hmm. that we are welcomed back into the presence of God because of the worthiness of Christ. In our unworthiness, we can still come in because Christ is worthy and we are in Christ. And so it takes away the, the reflex to have to hide ourselves um, and mm-hmm. to separate ourselves from God because that separation has been broken. We are welcomed back in. And so I can, that's another scandal of the gospel, that I can come in to the presence of God in my failure and that he welcomes me to be redeemed, to surrender myself once again um, and to welcome his redemption of my personhood 
of changing my character and making me more like Christ. Yeah, and like the story of the, of the prodigal son in Luke 15 mm-hmm. is like one of the mm-hmm. chief examples of mm-hmm. this, right? The older brother's argument in that story is he should have been shamed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He went and wasted our money with prostitutes, and here you come and you give him all the signs of honor. Mm-hmm. Shoes on his feet, a coat on his back, the family ring on his finger, a festival party. I mean, these are all signs of re-embracing, reincorporation, re-honoring mm-hmm. somebody who had wasted and was utterly untrustworthy and did everything possible so that we wouldn't all survive in this family. Right. And yet the father was like, this is what we're doing. We, right. He's part of our family. He's alive again. He was right. lost. Right. Yeah. And it makes me marvel at the gospel more every time that happens, mm-hmm. every time I find myself in that situation of like coming back into the presence of God and repentance and knowing that I'm welcomed in. Um, it, my reflex is rejoicing and praising mm-hmm. the grace and mercy of our God that he would welcome me back in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it totally transforms that moment in my relationship with God because instead of me separating myself and rejecting and growing bitter and growing in despair, but I'm welcomed back in and I praise him and my attention isn't on me anymore. It's on him and his goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think makes space for him to, to do his redeeming work in us in the context of relationship. While maintaining the glory and holiness of God, I think right. is, is, and this is the difference between the secular version, mm-hmm. um, is that it says in Romans that God was just and justified those who mm-hmm. had faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And by Christ taking away that shame, he doesn't wipe away what we're what we should live up to Mm -hmm. that's all still there Mm -hmm. and we can still feel ashamed that we don't live up to it Mm -hmm. and yet we're not in the status of shame Mm -hmm. being rejected and cast out by god Mm -hmm. and so we have all the same shameful motivations of wanting to change and be better and to live up to what it's meant to be to be trustworthy to god Mm -hmm. that is that god could trust us Mm -hmm. um and he can trust us and but we want to be trustworthy and yet know that we've been brought in under the trustworthiness of Christ and under the justness of Christ. I think also we have to think about like in terms of church discipline and what do you do when other mm-hmm. Christians sin? Yeah. Is it okay to be like, that's not okay. Right. What you're doing, that is not okay. There's all kinds of passages in the Bible that say that confrontation is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that what you said before about restorative shame versus separating shame is kind of the key biblical difference that mm-hmm. all all church discipline, all confrontation of sin is meant to draw the person to repentance mm-hmm. and back into community mm-hmm. in a way where they can be received honestly as trustworthy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instead of pretending it's not a big deal and saying, oh, you're fine. No, the relationship is breaking down because I can't trust you for us to survive. Right. You're not going to bring to this relationship what you have to for us all to survive and be secure. So I can't trust you. But I can tell you what you're doing is making me not trust you, and you should feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. But if you would repent and believe and come back on the terms of what's right and true, the standard God has put forward, then I can say, okay, maybe you are going to be trustworthy, mm-hmm. right? And so um, whether it's Church of the Splendid in First Corinthians chapter 5 or other places, there's this attempt to, mm-hmm. you call sin a sin, you do confront, you do rebuke, you do correct, mm-hmm. and yet it's always for correction it's all to bring it back into a place of restoration and i think that no church can seek holiness together mm-hmm. without the judicious restorative use of shame would you agree mm-hmm. with that yeah mm-hmm. and i think along with that is the space kind of it goes off an understanding that we all have shame and we've all done shameful things is that it makes it 
there's like space for confession. I think James talks about Mm -hmm. confessing to one another and there is a sense that in community, yes, we're all, yes, we confess to God, as you were talking mm-hmm. about, Hannah, but we also confess to each other and we right. speak into each other's mm-hmm. lives and on the basis of shame, but knowing that we all have shame. Right. And so it's not like a, you are doing this and I've, you know, I'm perfect. It's, there's space for confession and accountability because of our... Um, so Brene Brown is right in that sense, yeah. that empathy is incredibly important. But in the gospel, empathy exists in the presence of shame mm-hmm. um, and in the presence of all of our freedom from ultimate shame. Right. And it's, it's with, actually within the tension of the complexity mm-hmm. of that that we're rehabilitated and strengthened and brought right. together and drawn more into loving relationships rather than the elimination of the Using mm-hmm. empathy to eliminate mm-hmm. the presence of shame. Shame mm-hmm. in the presence of empathy is the highest restorative mm-hmm. rather than empathy mm-hmm. without shame. Or, Brene Brown would be right, shame without empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a certain shared empathy and sympathy and compassion we have for each other in our sins. Right. Mm-hmm. And if that's present, the empathy that she speaks of, you don't actually have to get rid of shame. Shame can be present, too, in the correction mm-hmm. so as to fully motivate us to want to be the kind of people that we were meant to be. That mm-hmm. is, this is what we in Christianity just call sanctification, right? That we're, we want to become what we were declared. Mm-hmm. And God is making us what we were declared. And we need each other. In order to do that, and sometimes that includes correction, and correction always bears with it our feeling reaction mm-hmm. of shame. Mm-hmm. And so I think she's right. We have to be, we need to know that we need to be empathetic, compassionate, and judicious, and, and very careful. Mm-hmm. And the observation of secular people that within churches um, there has been a misuse of shame, we would argue, yeah. That's not a symptom of the church. It's a symptom of humans. (laughs) And the church is full of humans, and Mm -hmm. we do misuse shame. That's absolutely true. Thank you for correcting us. Mm -hmm. But your correction that we should get rid of the entire concept is actually a medication that is worse than the disease. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that. And you shouldn't either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost like shame, the use of shame in this the church body, for restorative reasons, is... Shame without isolation. If shame, if isolation is normally the consequence of shame, mm-hmm. we are not doing the isolating part. <laughs> we're saying, wait, we're trying to restore you back into the community. So, yeah. Yeah, except in the utter extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in certain yeah. cases, but like Jesus is like, there's these four steps before you'd ever contemplate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, we've gone for a while now. Hopefully we've been very thorough and <laughs> engaging. <laughs> So thanks. For, I know you two especially did a lot of work. You read that book and outlined, like underlined half of it. And I know that, <laughs> Hannah, you've done a lot of work on this, having worked in Africa and Asia and preparing now to teach mm-hmm. in Asia. So thanks so much for all that you guys have worked on this. And hopefully this has been really helpful for folks. We'll see you next time. 